The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Pleased to welcome Tal Reback to the show. She's a director at KKR. I've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing her on television before. And Tal, before we get to inflation, the economy, um, Jerome Powell, Paul and I were just saying during the commercial break, everybody we know who went to Brandeis is either like on the board of the FOMC or incredibly successful just on the street. smart, every one of them. What? <laughs> What's the deal with that school? You guys are so funny. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me and happy Friday. You know what? I don't know. Maybe it's just the luck of the draw, hard workers, a little bit of scrappiness. I think it kind of comes down to that. Fundamentals right there. All right. So um, in your hard work now at, at KKR, looking at the fundamentals, what do you see in terms of this economy? It's a little bit scary going by the, uh, the volatility we've been through in um, markets and the, the inflation um, that we're seeing is, you know, generational. And you've just got to be worried about the growth, even if your base case isn't for a recession. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. And I think, look, the markets have a level of angst and we haven't lived through something like this in a very long time. And the inflationary levels are certainly very real and something to be extremely mindful of, especially across the investment landscape. Now, with all that being said, I think we look back at the last 24 months and we think about kind of the big vacuum of different drivers that the economy and the markets have had. And we have to take a moment to pause and say, you know, the Fed is probably sitting between a rock and a hard place and need to act. And there's a little bit of this great unwind happening. But even looking further beyond that, like the last 10 years of growth have, have really accelerated and there's this globalization of markets. So all that symbiosis coming together and then you tweaking one lever, like that's going to have network effects. And I think that's what we're living through right now with this volatility as we recalibrate. Tal, obviously KKR has been around for a long time, a tremendous pedigree, lots of experience there. But there's probably a lot of folks on a lot of your investment teams that have not lived through periods of, you know, really serious inflation Mm -hmm. or you, rate increases or, or rate increases for that matter so how are you what's what's the feeling with inside your firm about how to deal with inflation and how to kind of adjust that when you think about investment opportunities absolutely well you know kkr we've been doing this for 46 years and history is the greatest teacher and informant of the future and i think right now with multi-generations kind of living through maybe their first bout of real volatility. These are learning experiences where we're kind of putting together the way we move and pivot across the firm as a global team, um, really into use. And so I would say, even though there might be a level of first for some of the more junior folks across the team, there 
actually, they're actually incredible opportunities for us to kind of figure out how we could be more agile and creative as we structure investment opportunities, as we think about capital solutions, if we lean into different sectors or segments of the public markets. And quite honestly, one of the things that I love about working here is that it's, a, it's one team. And so we're kind of exchanging colors like across the pond, figuring out how we can work better together and figure out how we navigate this market. And for those on the front lines, and especially in the first few years of their career, that's super exciting. Do you go over to, I'm sure that Barbarians at the Gate is required reading when you get hired there. Do you you go to Henry Kravis and ask him for his 1970s playbook because so many people are concerned that we are looking at the possibility of a stagflation, the likes of which we haven't seen since that decade? You know, we are so fortunate at this firm to still be led by Henry and George and Scott and Joe to really put into play all the lessons of history. And quite honestly, I will demystify that Barbarians of the Gate is not required reading, but we certainly know very much like, you know, the things that the different decades have taught us across these markets, these markets are fundamentally different now. If we think about where they were even pre-GFC, you're talking about, you know, so much of the credit market being equity linked, daily liquidity vehicles. You have different inputs where if you see a sell-off in equities, there could be permutation into credit. That was not the case, you know, before the crisis. There's been a lot of talk about the 60-40 portfolio, the decoupling of the stock market and credit. I think we're starting to see that. There's a lot of new stuff here. And I would also argue that, like, you know, after the pandemic or since the onset of the pandemic, the rules of the game have kind of changed. And I think that's also what you're seeing a little bit as this, you know, the story unwinds a bit. So tell, I mean, KKR obviously is, is a global firm, global reach, uh, global view. Do you have parts of the world where you're a little bit more focused on right now, whether it be emerging markets or the, you know, developed markets? How do you think about that, given, you know, coming out of a two-year pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. We do have our global lenses on all the time. You know, I would say we're being we're being really selective in Europe, obviously, given the unfortunate situation there um, with the war. We also know that everything is intrinsically tied. Um, Asia is super interesting to us on the credit side. We're, we're still finding a lot of interesting opportunities um, in the U.S., but I would say we're in a walk versus run moment right now and so we are being we're cautious but we're walking and we're finding compelling areas to invest but we're not reaching and overly reaching for risk because i think what you're going to see is a little this will probably carry on for a little bit more the market now understands what the fed is doing i think they already knew what was coming but they're ingesting that reality all right tal great great stuff as always tal rebeck uh, director kkr and a proud graduate of Brandeis University, which, uh, again, everybody I've come across in my 30-year Wall Street career uh, from Brandeis have been really, really sharp people, so uh, they do a good job. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, I don't know what's going on. I'm looking at Twitter. Stock's down 9%. Dude. Nobody Elon's knows. got presumably a bid out there for $54.20. Uh, 
do we have a bid? Do we not have a bid? I don't know. I'm going to bring in a couple experts here. They kind of do this stuff for a living. Mandeep Singh, he's Bloomberg Intelligence senior tech analyst. And then add on the left coast, I think we're going to put the blame on him, is Ed Ludlow, Bloomberg News correspondent. Um, Mandeep, you're here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so I'm going to go to you first. Is Elon just trying to negotiate a lower price here? Well, so look at what has happened in the market over the last two, three weeks. Uh, internet companies, software companies, multiples have compressed and uh, appear like Snapchat is trading at uh, about five, six times sales. This deal was announced at seven times forward sales. And okay. if you use any metric, EV2 daily active user, uh, as per the deal, it's around $200. Snapchat is around you know, $115. So you can see how the deal can be negotiated lower and clearly at that price uh, for the users and you know the growth that Twitter had. Twitter is in the highest uh, growing asset in the social media space, Snapchat. You know, yeah. Before the tweet came out this morning, it was like 5.30, right? And when we kicked off my show, Bloomberg Surveillance Early Edition, um, simulcast on both Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, I said, you guys, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm so sick of the Twitter story. <laughs> and God love Elon Musk. You know, I'll give him all the credit that he is due. Yep. And it doesn't matter what credit I give him. He's still the richest man in the world. So good for him. But so annoying. Yep. Am I wrong, Ed? Is, this, <laughs> is, is he not annoying as, as all well, get out? Let's set a baseline, and the baseline is no one knows what's going on inside Elon Musk's head. Yeah, but right? that's, that's, what's so, that's what's so annoying. Like, I get it. It was interesting for a while. He's such a smarty. Right. And good for, me, good for him. I'm a fan. But this is super lame. For me, the, the thing is that it comes back to bots, right? If, if you try and find things that he has been consistent about, one of them is that he doesn't like bots on the platform. He said multiple times, I will remove bots from the platform. So, good point. This is, then this leads me to the question. When I first saw the tweet, I thought, oh, he thinks, what? Oh, no, it's less than 5% bots? Does that mean he no longer needs to buy Twitter? Because his whole mission in the first place right. was to get rid of the bots. And if right. it's less than 5%, he's like, ah, why bother? It's not even broken, so I'm not going to try and fix it. Or does this mean like his Bitcoin investments have dropped so he now doesn't have enough money to really buy Twitter. And so he's going to say, um, oh, there's too many bots. I sh didn't know that before the transaction and try and use it as an excuse <laughs> to cancel. Well, I think on the finance, I think he's in a strong financial position, right? We reported Thursday night that he's trying to get even more equity financing and completely eliminate the margin loan component of the deal. But I actually have a question for Mandeep focused on the bots, which is, Mandeep, why does he need Twitter to be a private entity to pull all of this off anyway? Like Twitter, if you read the boilerplate of the regulatory filing, they clearly know about the bots. They know about the science about how they track the bots. Why does taking Twitter private make any difference to this whole scenario? Well, so Twitter has underperformed in terms of, you know, just the product enhancements that, done, that they have done over the years. And it's not just about bots in terms of harnessing that engagement, monetization. So, and their cost uh, structure is bloated. So Twitter's revenue per employee is way lower than all their competitors. So there are multiple things that need to happen for Twitter to turn around. And you could argue once they go private, they don't need to raise more capital. So that's the thing about taking Twitter private is this is a self-sufficient model. You don't right. need more capital after you take it private. And look, you can cut costs and improve the margin structure. The problem in the deal was there was too much debt. 
So that's what he is, I think, solving for in terms of taking that, not taking that margin loan and really getting more uh, private uh, investors to partner with him to pay that cash portion. Also, Ed, isn't the idea um, these bots make their user numbers look better, right? It makes well, um, interactions look stronger. If you take away the bots as a public company, it'll be super disappointing, like Netflix with no subscribers. So, but if you're, if you're private, nobody's looking and who cares? Well, hold on also, if it's only 5% of users that, that is the bot, so the, the, then wouldn't the opposite be true? But I guess the thing that interests me most is that you know Twitter did put in the boilerplate that their number may be a little bit off because they're constantly using algorithms to remove bots, but at the same time, new accounts are being set up. There's an irony in all of this, right? That the biggest complaint for many users is crypto-related bots, you know, the crypto community on Twitter. But Elon Musk is one of the great victims of the great bot attack right he might be a crypto bot well for I, all we know <laughs> we could just be living in a simulation and musk is a crypto bot by the way look i'm looking at my my twitter account um matt miller 1973 i have 17.8 thousand followers oh wow. there player. is no wow. way Whoa. i have 17.8 thousand followers i interact with like four people on twitter I'm one of them. Um, you know, no one ever tweets me besides Ed and Creedy, and <laughs> I don't believe that I have eighteen thousand followers. That's got to be fake. Well, I, I want Mandy to jump in at this point if there's time. But what I would say is that there are thematic things. So when I tweet about Elon Musk and Tesla, which I do regularly, there's a very engaged, active, real community. But there are also a very quick flood of bots that seize on this idea that Musk is one of the biggest users on the platform and one of the most followed. But he also engages. And, you know, the bots and when we say bots, I mean, bots in the sense of automation, but also the people behind those accounts, there must be some, they sense an opportunity with Musk. And that's the irony I'm talking about. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is there are a lot of passive users. So what you're talking about, Matt, is uh, being a creator. Yes, there are fewer creators on the platform than there are users. And uh, look, engagement time for Twitter has steadily gone up. So all their metrics look okay, uh, and, and the Twitter platform has a decent engagement when you think about it. But look, bots is a unique problem for Twitter because over the years, they didn't do a good job of really taking improving their ad stack behind the scenes, and that is where all the monetization problems emanate from. Who's your, Mandeep, who's your favorite tweeter? Which tweeter adds the most value to your Twitter experience? Well, so I, I think Musk is right up there in terms of coming up with ideas. And look, he is tweeting. Bored Elon Musk or the real Elon Musk account? The uh, real uh, <laughs> Elon Musk. Uh, and, and look, I, I think there are plenty of people, politicians that you can follow. And there, there is value in terms of being a passive user. So the thing about Twitter is it has more of the white collar workers. So there are who, if you try to model it the traditional way, should be higher than some of the other social media platforms. But that's not the case because they have done a very poor job of showing ads to their right. users. Mandeep Singh, mm. Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks so much. Ed Ludlow, Bloomberg News, bringing you all the latest. Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, joins us here. And it's time to discuss as we talk about the labor market. But Ian, I know you guys, your publicly traded company, ZIP, on the New York uh, Stock Exchange. You guys just reported some numbers recently, your earnings. What were the highlights? 
Uh, first off, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we had another exceptional quarter. Our business grew 81%. We beat on both top line and on bottom line, as well as raised guidance for the full year. Talk to us about Congrats, talk to us about the labor market. The one question I have for labor, and I, I'm not sure I've heard a really good answer, but the four to five million people that left the labor force, who are they? Where did they go? And are they coming back? Yeah, well, the, if you look, there's really there's two trends going on in the labor market right now that are really interesting. So number one, uh, you have a robust demand from employers. There's 11 million open jobs in the country, and you can compare that to the pre-COVID period where we thought we had a white-hot hiring market and there were 7 million open hmm, jobs. Wow. So obviously, a lot of employers have had to staff back up in a post-COVID reopening of the economy. And then the other factor that's really hurting employers right now is for the last nine months, you've had 4 million people quitting their job every month. And in a normal, healthy economy, that was more like 2.5 million. So substantial demand for uh, new openings from employers as well as real struggle to retain the people they have. And that's just creating sort of a hiring tsunami where there's rampant demand for talent and a shortage of it. And what you're seeing is a lot of job seekers in the post-COVID world are looking for a different type of work. And that is what is driving a lot of the shortage of labor that we're seeing today. I'll tell you what, I feel a little bit of a rivalry with Ian. And it's kind of like, you know, when um, there's a sports rivalry, only one school cares about it and the other one one really doesn't. (laughs) Because I went to Antioch and he went to Oberlin. We always consider ourselves the champions of the kind of the progressive movement, right? Right. But Oberlin was too smart to really care about us. Uh, Do you think, Ian... I th- yep. uh, our founder at Antioch, Horace Mann, said, be ashamed to die until you've won some great victory for mankind. Do you think you're in a good position to do that right now at ZipRecruiter? Because the pandemic has really changed the way labor struggles against capital in a, in a positive way for the former and, um, you know, opened up doors for diversity and really made um, a- a- employment a-, a place where you can do good. Yeah, and I think, you know, the biggest thing that changed in a post-COVID world was this desire for remote work. There's an economist over at Stanford named Nick Bloom who says it's accelerated the transition to uh, remote work by 50 years. And if you look at it, too, what we have right now is a job seeker or a currently employed population that has become aware of their leverage. And they are, they are utilizing that leverage to get significantly higher pay in a number of different ways. The wage story, the uh, wage growth doesn't tell the whole story because 22% of new jobs are being offered signing bonuses in order to induce people to change jobs. And then on top of that, um, employers are discovering that they are the ones who have to go first. 37% of people hired in the last six months were recruited to those positions. That's compared to 19% in the pre-COVID period. So there's just been a huge flip in the job market. And a ZipRecruiter, you know, through both design and through good fortune, our primary feature is software that enables employers to go first and reach out and recruit job seekers. We were able to create more than 7 million great matches last quarter using algorithmic techniques to give those employers the right list of job seekers to recruit. And that has been a big part of our success. We were effectively where the puck went 
when this post-COVID reality happens. Mm, good stuff. All right, Ian Siegel, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Ian Siegel, he's the CEO and co-founder of Zip Recruiter. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, man, I'm not, my kids are all grown, so I'm not in the uh, baby formula market. But this story has really got my attention because I know it's impacting so many families across the country, uh, this baby formula shortage. And we want to get somebody who can really shed a light on it for us. We have Laura Modi, CEO and co-founder of Bobby. Um, Laura, I'd love for you just to explain how we got to where we are here in the United States with baby formula. Yeah, and lovely to chat with you. I wish it was under better better terms, though. It, it is a very, very scary situation, what's happening. I will say, like, even as a mom, I can emphasize greatly. Mm. But, yeah, as, as the CEO of an infant formula company, it's complex. As the industry is complex in itself. To make infant formula, it requires an immense amount of safety. So breaking into it isn't easy. But we are here because when very few players own the market and when one of those players has a recall, it's going to leave a gap in the market. And that's exactly what we're trying to fill. So what can be done, Laura? You know, um, as a father, I understand the fear as well. Um, I have an 18-month-year-old baby. 18-month-year-old? Uh, that's not 18. right. Month. 18 month old, oh. one and a half year old uh, baby. She's a she's uh, perfect. 18 going on 18 years. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, you know, we had an issue. Breastfeeding was a real problem, and and there was a point where we had to turn to formula. And for a lot of people, this is a reality that I don't think, um, I don't think the men uh, in our society are aware of. That means that baby formula is the only choice for so many developing. Um, infants, mm -hmm. what what would you do if you couldn't get hold of baby formula? Yeah, I, I think that's a point that's getting missed in this shortage. A lot of people are reading it like it's the 2020 toilet paper situation, and it's not. 75% of babies use some type of formula by the time they are six months old, and it is the only alternative to breast milk. It's not like you can turn to anything else. And what happens during a moment where you can't find food for your baby is you see behaviors that are honestly unacceptable, like making homemade formula in your kitchen, rationing formula, test, uh, all of these things that are frankly dangerous and only increase safety issues. This is a crisis, and we have to solve for it before we see these behaviors get worse. Laura, can you just, uh, again, uh, uh, just to shed some light on the story, Again, how did we get here? As what, to why? Why? What, what baby formula manufacturer? Just give us a sense of the structure of the baby formula market. Where do we get it and who produces it and who had a problem and, you know, kind of how did we get here? Yeah, well, we got here because, you know, the infant formula industry, this is a basic supply and demand issue, right? There's only so many mouths to feed when it comes to infant formula. And up until the recall, we had. Now, who, who had a recall? Abbott, Abbott Nutrition, that makes Similac. Okay. 
uh, one of the largest infant formula manufacturers in the country, and they've been making high-quality infant formula for decades. Right. And they're very good at what they do. What we have been unprepared for, and not you know pointing fingers at any one company here either, this is, as we look at it as an industry, it's what we are unprepared for is when one of those Goliaths has a recall, are we prepared as a nation to be able to support the gap? Okay. And what we've realized in this moment is we're not. What, so, what, what can you do, Laura? I mean, Bobby yeah. is um, not the size of Abbott, let's say. And I'm no. sure your production facilities are, are limited right now. What kind of demand are you looking at for your formula? And what kind of production can you um, uh, achieve? We're producing, I mean, honestly, we are producing as much as we can, but we have actually made the decision in the last few weeks to only serve our current customers and made a very, what was a tough decision to decide to stop growing the business temporarily while we just focus on serving those that are currently on Bobby. That gives them the peace of mind that we have the supply to be able to serve them during this uncertain time. And it also ensures that from a production standpoint, the production of infant formula can be prioritized for formulas that are maybe for those more vulnerable. Um, and and again, zooming back out to the greater issue here, this goes far beyond any one brand right now or any one company, and hence why you see the government stepping in. We have to look at what we are doing to use the current production on the market to be able to support with products that are feeding this country right now. Laura, do you have a sense, given your position in the industry, uh, of when this shortfall may be um, kind of fixed, if you will? Um, in the last 48 hours, I'll be honest, I've been very impressed watching uh, both the FDA and the White House step forward with some very clear points about how they plan on taking action. And it's action that if I were to put the put solutions together is exactly what, what we should be doing, which is creating flexibilities in the system, looking to bring formula from overseas, especially especially for specialty formulas. So I think while we are right at the peak of the crisis right now, uh, all eyes are on it. FDA, White House and companies are doing everything they can. And I would expect in the next few weeks we're going to see this die down. Okay. And Laura, that's kind of where I wanted to go. This if from what I read and learn, this is primarily a U.S. issue, not a global issue. So perhaps some of the supply from other parts of the world can be directed here. We can we can order hip for double the price from Germany. Right. No comments. No comments on that. But you are you are absolutely correct in saying that this is not a global issue. This is a U.S. issue, and it is an issue that we are beginning to look outside of the U.S. and say, how can we get other formulas to be able to support in this moment? Are you part of a growing avant-garde of, um, of better and uh, of higher quality baby and child nutrition? I just noticed you work with Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, my friend Sophia Laurel, who does uh, Tiny Organics, um, also I think works with Gwyneth or Sam Ski. It seems like there's a group of women that are just improving the quality of nutrition for, for infants and, and babies. You know, this journey has been entirely personal. Um, I went into feeding my own child and realized I just wanted to see better options on the market. 
and, you know, set out on the journey to produce an organic, clean formula that we could be proud of. And I've had the fortune of being able to feed it to two more babies of my own afterwards. Good. That's great. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking time explaining to us what this uh, important issue is. And for a lot of families across the United States, um, didn't see that one coming, uh, but it's out there. And hopefully we can uh, address that shortfall very soon. Laura Modi, CEO and co-founder of Bobby, which is a baby formula delivery startup. So a perfect uh, source to get some information on this issue. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.